Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1989. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris. I'm a filmmaker. I am a comedian, and I am well-regarded in the world of kabuki. (laughs) I feel like you were just like stalling to come up with something there and i'm glad that you got to kabuki i put words together and they made sense yeah well that's a, that's debatable if you want to hire me for some artistic kabuki interpretations then uh you know where to find me yeah find jason <laughs> jason harris kabuki yeah jason harris kabuki.com <laughs> yeah that's right that's good. at jason harris kabuki on all the socials so. <laughs> So, uh, in this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, Steven Soderbergh's set slides and videotape. And uh, as we mentioned in our last episode, which was our filmmaking debut episode, this is also, it could have been covered there because it was Steven Soderbergh's first film and quite a debut on his part, really. Yeah, unless you want to count the a quintessential yes concert documentary 902 on live or whatnot. That that is a good point. Which I do not. No, no, I don't think that counts. So, but it doesn't matter because that's not what uh the criteria are for this. Didn't episode. make the cut, buddy. No, no, but it did make the cut at the Cannes Film Festival where it won the Palme d'Or as well as the Best Actor Award for James Spader. Uh and I think more so than uh being at Cannes, it's known uh, for being at the Sundance Film Festival in 1989, which happened a few months before Cannes, uh, where it did not win the Grand Jury Prize. And we're going to talk about that movie in a later episode this season. It did, however, win the Audience Award at Sundance and really was hugely uh, instrumental in putting Sundance on the map. Yeah, I mean, talk about uh, it was one of those uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, right? It was beneficial to both the festival and the film. Like they both blew each other up at the same time. Right. Uh, I think that is, uh, is true. And I mean, we think of, we talked, you know, we had our 1994 season and we talked about Pulp Fiction and Clerks and Sundance probably blew up even more in the nineties, but this was really the beginning of it becoming such a huge deal. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm no historian, Josh. No, you're just a Kabuki guy. (laughs) But if I was to combine my love of Kabuki and history, no. Uh, But I think, yeah, if you were going to go over the history of Sundance, this is the movie that kind of pivoted it from like, oh, this is a cool little indie festival in the the woods in the winter of Utah, you know, to, oh, now every uh, agent or talent manager or studio head is going to be here because they might find the next Sex Lines videotape. Right. This is the place where that kind of stuff gets discovered. And thanks to its success at Sundance and at Cannes, it became a a box office success. Uh, It grossed $36.7 million on a budget of just $1.2 million. So that's a huge success. And especially for a movie like this that I feel like even today, I would be amazed at this movie uh, making that much money. It might be even harder today for this movie to make this money. Yeah. I think Soderbergh's had a few in his career where you're like, oh, he's really... Uh, outkick the coverage of the expected uh, total gross of these films. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's made plenty of weird, obscure things that didn't make money, but there are certainly movies in his career where 
he just follows his own weird muse and it turns out to be successful uh, in a sort of unlikely way. And, and in this movie uh, continued its success at the Oscars. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, although it lost to Dead Poets Society, which I have not seen, but I feel like there's a lot of writing in Dead Poets Society. So that's, uh, <laughs> Maybe some poetry. Yeah. Yeah, also up for that was Do the Right Thing. Crimes and Misdemeanors and When Harry Met Sally. So Yeah, that's quite a category. It's a big, there. big time yeah. category. So no shame in losing there. Nope. Uh, also nominated for three Golden Globes uh, for Best Original Screenplay as well, uh, along with Best Actress for Andy McDowell and Best Supporting Actress for Laura San Giacomo. Uh, it did not win any of those either, but certainly broke out far beyond this indie film world. And it won Independent Spirit Awards for Best Picture, Director, female lead and supporting female uh and uh spader as the male lead lost to matt dillon and drugstore cowboy and another good movie for yeah Christian. yeah peter gallagher no love on this one huh yeah yeah i mean we'll, we'll talk about him uh he's fine in this so uh but it was interesting to me i think i had not remembered i knew it was a big deal on the indie circuit but i hadn't remembered that it had actually sort of permeated into that mainstream awards conversation. Well, not just that. You were talking about, you know, how much money it made. Uh, it was also not just made that much money. It was making at one point $38,995 per showing, per theater. That's pretty impressive, man, for any movie. But for like a little indie movie in 1989 before the internet and everything, that's quite a feat. Right. I mean, for word to spread about this movie because it was a limited release. And I mean, I think this is similar to when we talked about Clerks in our 1994 season that it never went wide on the level of like a blockbuster, but just it picked up that momentum of people seeing it at the festivals and then seeing it in major cities. And then it gets reported on. And by the time it makes it to a smaller market, it uh, people know that this is like a cool thing to see. Yeah. Uh, so uh, had you seen this movie before? Yeah, I actually took a class in college on Spike Lee and Steven Soderbergh, like a major figures class. So the first time I saw it was there from UNLV professor Francisco Menendez. Oh, shout out to Francisco yeah, Menendez. Who, a uh, very good professor of these major figure classes. Yeah. So. so did you watch this along with like Do the Right Thing because of uh, them being in the same year? Yeah, well, we watched pretty much everything from those filmmakers at that point in time. So That's a lot. Well, yeah, I had counted uh, the other day when I was doing research. I think I've seen like 22 Steven Soderbergh movies. Yeah, I've seen almost all of them. Right, movies. which is just the fact that like 22 out of 30, the fact that he's put out 30 movies is pretty incredible. He's a very prolific guy. Yeah. yeah, and he had retired for a few years. Right, and yeah, he still made like four movies since then, I think, since his, I know. his retirement. Yeah, but um, no, we watched everything, you know, the beginning from this, uh, the underneath, Kafka, King of the Hill, Schizopolis, which I don't think anyone that I know has seen besides me. Did you see that? I've one? seen it. Yeah. I don't think anyone I know besides me and you, Josh. No. <laughs> Dave, have you seen Schizopolis? I can't say that I have. All right. right. And then, you know, Grey's Anatomy's in there, which I have not seen. I haven't either. But I've uh, seen the documentary now parody of it, though. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and then, you know, after Schizopolis comes that break, that great break in his career, which he kind of needed. Um, and then he reinvents himself with Out of Sight. And then it's off to the races, baby. Yeah, we don't. We can name every single one of his movies. Maybe in our legacy section, we'll just do that. Well, I'm just I, saying that was like the 
two periods of his career. Right, right. I mean, and he's probably had multiple periods uh, of his career kind of as that's gone on and is in this weird post-retirement period right now. Um, when did you see it for the first time? I, I don't know. Exa- I didn't. It might have been when I was in college, not for a college class. But um, I think, you know, as we were talking about with Cameron Crowe in the last episode, I had seen later Soderbergh films probably out of sight or Aaron Brockovich or uh, Traffic and just love them so much. So I wanted to go back and see his early work. So this would have been one that I watched along with uh, Schizopolis, maybe. Um, and I think at the time, like I, I didn't remember, not only did I re- not remember a whole lot about like the movie itself, but I didn't really remember my reaction to it. I don't know how much I liked it when I first saw it. I remember liking it, but I didn't, I definitely didn't remember much of the movie. Yeah. And so I think uh, a lot of it was fairly fresh to me coming back to it this time. Dave, did you watch this one? No, the cheapest I could find, it was $12.99. I was like, I'm not watching it. I invited you over to watch it. You did, but that's, you know. Yeah, that's way more effort than Dave can put into watching a movie. (laughs) Well, I thought. We're going to be on a street with him, but street we got one. You got one. You got one. Not Maybe. much of a street. We'll that's see. More we'll see like what a, happens as the season, season goes on. Yeah. Josh, that's an anomaly, not a streak. Uh, if a street, if it's just <laughs> one, that's, you know, yeah, that's that's, that's the exception to the rule. That's a fair assessment of that. Um, so I was interested looking up reviews of this movie because we think of this as such a, a highly acclaimed film, winning those awards at the film festivals and the Oscar nominations. But a lot of stuff that I found was somewhat mixed on this movie when it was first being released in theaters. Um, Roger Ebert liked it, um, but I, I have a like couple excerpts because I think he brings up something interesting. And so I wanted to kind of look at two perspectives from him. So he said, um, the early stages of sex lies and videotape are a languorous, but intriguing setup for the tumult that follows. The adultery between John and Cynthia has the usual consequences and creates the usual accusations of betrayal. But the movie, and I think the audience, is more interested in Graham's sexual pastimes. Unable to satisfy himself in the usual ways, he videotapes the sexual fantasies of women and then watches them. This is a form of sexual assault. He has power not over their bodies, but over their minds, over their secrets. And I suspect that the most erotic sentence in his vocabulary is, she's actually telling me this stuff. And so since that was kind of a critical... uh, Thing. I wanted to li- get something more positive because he did like it. So later in the review, he says, um, Spader's performance throughout the film is a kind of risk taking. Can you imagine the challenge an actor faces in taking the kind of character I have described and making him not only intriguing, but seductive? Spader has the kind of sexual ambiguity of the young Brando or Dean. He seems to suggest that if he bypasses the usual sexual approaches, it is because he has something more interesting up or down his sleeve. So I thought his characterization of that as sexual assault was really interesting. I was, th- I, I was trying to make sense of it in my head because it's, he filmed all these um, confessions uh, with consent. So I'm not really sure how he could call it sexual assault. Right. And that was why I wanted to get the later part uh, where I don't know that Ebert is saying that this character is like a sexual predator per se. Uh, or certainly I don't think he's saying that the movie endorses that idea um, because he's very positive on the movie. But watching it for me this time, I thought, you're right. He does do all of that stuff with consent. And so I don't think he's necessarily a sexual predator. But you do have to wonder, like, 
what is the dynamic there with those women and how many of them might, we don't really see other than our two main characters, uh, anyone going through this, but he's got all these videotapes and who might've felt pressured to do something like that. Well, here's where I'm going to refute that claim because when Andy McDowell's character wants to make tape, he tries to talk her out of it saying, Hey, you, I don't think you would ever make this decision if you aren't in this state of mind. So um, at that point, then all I can go on is what evidence we have before us. Josh. Right. That's true. That's true. Although I think you could argue that he says that because he know that knows that saying that is exactly what he should be saying to get her to do it. I don't know, man. How, that's now you're really, you know, looking uh, all types of subversion that uh, maybe I'm just not bright enough to get. I, I, I don't mean to imply that, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think you assaulted my intelligence. I did. Um, no, I think my point is that even if he's not, coercing women per se. I watched this movie thinking that this character, this is James Spader's character is a creep and maybe he's not like a predator, but he's not like a a likable guy. Well, I mean, first now let me defend our old boy Graham here. Okay. Yeah. Um, first of all, okay. Like I said, he has consent for all of these videos. True. Secondly, he promises to never show them to anyone. And as far as we know, he's never shown any of the videos to anyone. So he's kept up his end of the deal. And when people have asked him, he told, he's told them like, no, I can't show you them. This is my private thing uh, with this person, you know? So, and third of all, like, Hey man, different, different strokes for different folks. Do you want to go? You know, Sure. No, I mean, I agree with all of that stuff. That's all absolutely true. And he only shows, we're getting a little off track here, but he only shows Peter Gallagher's character, the video at the end, because he gets physically assaulted. Yeah. He doesn't show him the video. Right. Right. He's forced. Yeah. yeah, Beats him up and takes the video. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think all of that stuff is true. And you're, you're right about all of that. But at the same time, I just felt like if I met this guy in person, I'd be like, I don't want to talk to this guy. You know, that was the vibe that I got. And I thought was kind of like, the point yeah but, but maybe it was saying right but ebert's saying the exact opposite which is you know he's so seductive in his own ways and i'm guessing that's not just towards women that's t- towards people in right general. right that he's supposed to be that yeah charismatic and i don't know i didn't quite see it but um yeah so ebert was very positive uh some other people more mixed uh Dessen howe in the washington post said uh with some some puns here at the beginning, which we always like in these reviews. Canned goods frequently are damaged in transit by the hype machine. And Sex Lies, an arty, quote, small film, doesn't exactly hold up under the scrutiny. But awards or not, writer, director, editor Soderbergh has composed a wry, highly watchable piece that comes across as a great first effort by a film school graduate. The movie is welcome relief for what it doesn't do. It doesn't bear firearms, bend fenders, or bear grinning teeth see Dennis Quaid's movies and try not to think of flossing. With its deadpan non-commercial quality, not to mention shoestring budget, Sex Lies has an alternative feel. The performers, all of them unhistrionic, seem caught in an absorbing documentary rather than in a power acting drama. So his wordplay aside, he seems to feel like this is sort of, he's, he's sort of damning it with faint praise, calling it like a good effort from a film student. Well, the wordplay, I mean, dude, that, that 
that uh review sounds perfectly dated from like the 80s. yeah it does. who was the guy with the big hair and the mustache oh was, god gene shallot yeah yeah my brother always does a good impression of someone should have videotaped his mouth shut you know or something like that yeah it's not quite that bad but yeah right. i see what you're saying but um i mean hmm i would say this as watching we both watched so many soderbergh movies you can see he's kind of a prodigy even in this movie, the way he moves the camera, really, really pretty scintillating and very uh, mature stuff, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. I think this is far more than just like a, a film school type of effort or like, oh, you can see that maybe uh, next time he'll really get it right or something. like. Yeah. That. And um, what's interesting, and I know you usually do three. I reviews. do have one more coming. Yeah. Go, go for it. And then I'll see. Uh, well, because I wanted a women's perspective, because especially given what Roger Ebert said yeah, about I the think sexual assault. I'm glad you got a woman's perspective. Um, so Karen James in the New York Times uh, quite likes it. Uh, she said, Mr. Soderbergh's astonishing first film is a liaison dangereuse for the video age, a rich, absorbing tale of sexual greed and fear, love and betrayal in which Graham's camera becomes a central player. It is an intricate dance of constantly changing partners whose connections are based on truth, self-denial, and outright deception. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which won the grand prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival, comes loaded with advanced praise that seems impossible to meet. Amazingly, the film surpasses that. So she loved it. And these are no lies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, what's funny is um, I feel like this is a, very good example of a film that has outlived the criticism. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That was, to me, again, what I was expecting to see just raves for it and was surprised to see so much skepticism. Yeah, the legend of the movie uh, took on its own life, I guess. Um, and the public, not the critics like you, Josh, <laughs> the public had the last say. I mean, the critics are part of the public. They're people too, man. Critics are people too. Okay, Josh. Uh, did you have something else that you were that you were about to get to there? Uh, I wanted to say this. Uh, for, you know, when we like we this, we always do background. Uh, nine days. He wrote this in nine days on a yeah. cross country road trip. Wh- who finds time to write when they're driving cross country? One, that's exhausting. Well, maybe he was the passenger on the road trip. He could have maybe done it into a dictaphone. He said he had been thinking about it for a year. Yeah, but still, pretty impressive to do it in nine days. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, we know he's uh, he's more than just directing this one, right? He's got multi credits with different names, like he usually does. Yeah, he was the editor. It's not. I think he actually didn't use pseudonyms at this point because he didn't need to. But he was the editor and not the cinematographer this time, right. I believe. Uh, but of course, he was also the writer, which he usually is not the writer on his films. He's only written a handful of other films. I don't know, man. As a twenty-six-year-old, to pull this off, like pretty awesome dude yeah it is what were we doing at 26 not making sex lies and videotapes i made a short film called sally pepper's neighborhood detective which is is it's a good effort for a film student (laughs) yeah it was a good it was a good uh good little film that's still on youtube and uh definitely would have to cut certain scenes today if i made that movie yeah well, uh, we'll come back and talk. Not in like a creepy, weird way. Just in the times have changed. Yeah, that's all right. It. That's all right. We can. Uh, we Not can... in a gram sexual <laughs> fetish. No, never mind. We'll come back and talk more about Sally Peppers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into our general thoughts on sex lies and videotape in a moment.
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we are talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Josh, you know what I did during the break? Uh, no. Kabuki. <laughs> that was some really quick kabuki. Yeah. Well, hey, man, there's no, there's no length or limit on art. Yeah. <laughs> I can't argue with that. <laughs> So, uh, did you, <laughs> you, did you Focus, like Sex, Josh. Lies, and Videotape? I did. Did I you take it. what you had learned in your class and bring it to watching this film? Um, I think I would have to, you know, there are certain things that stick with you about a filmmaker. And he is so character driven. And, I mean, there are so many actresses we could list who have probably given their best performances in a Soderbergh movie. And I would bet you that either one of these two would count as that, you know? And, and James Spader too, really. Yeah. I keep thinking of secretary Spader when I see this. Yeah. It's a, um, but I, he, you know, he's, he's uh, yeah. I mean, all the acting, you don't like Peter Gallagher though. I mean, it's not that I don't like Peter Gallagher. I think that character is the most kind of one dimensional in this movie and, and yeah. he's, he's fine. He's not bad in it. And, and he's obviously someone that Soderbergh liked. I mean, they did the underneath together with Gall which Gallagher was the star of. He's, perfect for that movie yeah um and i'm not sure it's like they, a film noir -y right thing. right which is one of soderbergh's i think least favorites of his own films um and i'm not sure if they've worked together more since then i know soderbergh likes to work with the same people a lot um but no the the, the performances are all strong and i think peter gallagher does everything that he could do with that role uh you know i know you like the alternate casting initially tim daly was supposed to play that role and i think he would have also been fine I, I don't think there's just not as many dimensions to that. Part. I think that's fair. Cause even when you see, um, you know, his reunion with Graham for the first time, it's very like, Hey Graham, remember when we were in college and there were parties, you know, what like, voice is that? <laughs> Peter Gallagher, Kabuki, Peter Gallagher. I haven't even seen the movie and I know that's not the voice. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm from Boston, but I'm a dad on the OC. I don't know. Yeah, was, no, no. I got nothing on Peter. I don't, I don't have a Peter Gallagher impression. I'm going to admit it. I mean, that's okay. Who does have a Peter Gallagher impression? <laughs> um, but beyond Peter Gallagher, I mean, you're, you're right. Andy McDowell and Laura San Giacomo, and this was Laura San Giacomo's like, first role. Um, they're both fantastic. She had to movie. fight for the role. You know, the backstory on this is that uh, the, she was with the same agency as Elizabeth McGovern, who the role was written for the... Um, the Anne role that uh, Andy, McDowell's Andy McDowell's role, played. yeah. And uh, Elizabeth McGovern's agents hated the script so bad they wouldn't even show it to her. And then Andy McDowell wanted to do it, but Soderbergh was like, mm, really, Grace Skull? You know, like, because she, he didn't think that she had like kind of the depth and then she earned the part because, um, and then San Giacomo was like, I'm going to leave the agency if you don't let me take this part. And she got it. Yeah. And it was a smart move on all of their parts because um, this is, like you said, so even even now, looking back on these actors, it's probably one of the first things that comes to mind in terms of their best work. Um, and they are fantastic. Um, the The plot here, we kind of uh, danced around. Uh, James Spader plays plays Graham, who is the old college friend of Peter Gallagher's character. And they haven't seen each other. John. John. There you go. Even his name is boring. Yeah. Um, and they haven't seen each other in nine years. And he comes back to town. It's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And uh, 
gets involved a bit with uh, John's wife, and played by Andy McDowell, and her sister Cynthia, played by Laura Jacinta. Um, emotionally Como. involved. Emotionally involved, yes. And through his weird predilection for uh, making these videotapes of women talking about their sex lives. He's uh, impotent. As right. he says, I mean, he's self-described as impotent, and you have to wonder if that's maybe just a thing that he says to make himself seem non-threatening. Man, you are really not high on this Graham character at all. I mean, I'm high on him as a character. I just think, like, if I if he was a person that I personally knew, I would not want to associate with him. So, you know, he meets these women and talks to them and uh, gets to know them on uh, maybe a deeper emotional level than... John. Yeah, John clearly does not care about but the John is of the already, women around him. John is already having an affair with Cynthia, played by Laura Sangiacomo. So the sister. Right. And sister. So that's an important part. I don't know if you mentioned that. I didn't, but that is, yeah. They're they're all sort of entangled. This the, the four of these people are all uh in this kind of round robin of sexual whatever. Right. And Anne becomes um, I would say emotionally attached to Graham and protective of him in a um, not necessarily, not a healthy way, I'd say. No, you know? no one in this movie is healthy. There's the one line where Graham says that compared to John <laughs> yeah. and Anne and Cynthia, he feels, he feels healthy, but yeah, he's wrong. They're yeah. all, they're all quite not. That's, healthy. you know, I, I remind me of that point. Cause I wanted to talk about the, the dialogue a little bit, but, um, yeah. So, you know, so Anne kind of is possessive of Graham and she doesn't want, uh, Cynthia she already might know that Cynthia and John are having an affair, or maybe she hasn't. She strongly suspects right. it. Yeah. She doesn't want Cynthia to meet Graham. She finds out about the videos and she's disgusted and uh, turned off personally. Not even, I'm not even saying sexually just turned off, uh, you know, from a personal level on him. And then the next day, Cynthia goes and finds Graham, even though I don't know how she found Graham, but she found Graham and uh, she makes a video. And I think that kind of probably breaks, uh, breaks her sister's heart more than more than the affair with her husband at this point in time. Yeah, I mean it seems like Anne cares a lot more about her relationship with Cynthia than she cares about with her husband. I mean to the point where you have to wonder like how and why did those people get married in the first place? They don't seem to have any kind of connection even in the past. Yeah, uh Cynthia's not a good sister. No, I mean these are <laughs> none of these really are very good people. Yeah. But uh yeah, that's true. I mean they have this level of competition where Cynthia wants to sleep with John, not because she seems to like him at all, but just because he's her sister's husband. I kind of like how detached she is on that. And, um, you know, they're talking about, they get the mom a present, which uh, Anne buys, and Cynthia's going to, um, you know, pay her part. And you, you could have figured that she bought her like a sundress. Right. But I think no matter what she would have bought her, she would have just been like, oh, that's what you picked out. Great. Right. You know, that's right. Like yeah. She's very judgmental of Anne. And Anne is very judgmental of her. I mean, they both are. Uh, and there's a speech later. Anne's, Anne's thing is that she is sort of not engaged in sex. She feels like sex is overrated. I think if this movie were made today, we would identify her as asexual. But there's a point later in the movie where she says, in part, she doesn't want to be a sexual person because Cynthia is so sexual and she doesn't want to be associated with the way that Cynthia behaves in any way. Right. There, you wonder, and I'm, I'm guessing they worked it out, but what's the backstory between those two? They got to be a little more than competitive, right? To have that much of a love-hate relationship. Right. I mean, there's a lot of backstory that just isn't touched on here and i i don't know if soderbergh or the actors kind of worked some of that stuff out but again i think just like 
the idea of Anne and John and how did they fall in love? Why did they get married? Like what kind of connection did they ever have? Even John and Graham, the idea that they were friends in college. And we mentioned, they mentioned that a little bit and talk about how Graham has changed, but it's still hard to envision them as having been friends, even at a time in the past. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I think one of the reasons why I could see John and Anne married is this is Baton Rouge. This is what the capital city of Louisiana. It feels very small town, right? True. It does. So it's almost like, Hey, this is it, man. This is what you do. This is the best it's going to get. And at least he's got a good job and you know, I'll have a nice home or something. Right. And she ones. talks about that when, when Graham asks her when he first comes to their house and he says, what do you like about being married? And she doesn't mention anything about John as a person. She says she likes their house and his job and the security. Right. And she doesn't even say that he's nice to her or anything like that. And he's not, I mean, other than the affair he's having with the sister. Well, that's he's not, not nothing. mean to her. They're just so disconnected from each other. Right, right. I mean, I think he gets a little mean at, at, at later in the movie when he thinks that she's sleeping with Graham or something is going on there. But... Yeah, he's yeah. not necessarily a horrible person or he's not an abusive husband or anything They're like that. They're just in a, a marriage that shouldn't be. Right. They never should have gotten married in the first place, which is why you kind of wonder how that how that came about. Yeah. Um, but this is a movie that really lives in the moment. It's not it's not concerned necessarily with that. It's about the relationships that are occurring at the particular moment. And I think in those moments, it works very well. Yeah. Uh, and though, not necessarily a character that lives in the moment, as we learn from her therapy scene up front, right? Where uh, she's got some great like lines that maybe aren't supposed to be funny, but are really funny, you know? She says, being happy isn't so great. The last time I was happy, I gained 25 pounds, right? That's very revealing of the character. And then the therapist asks her if she masturbates. And she says, it just seems so stupid, especially when you don't know what to do with all the garbage because she's fixated on what's going to happen to all the world's garbage. Right. Know? I mean, I feel like, you know, she has a lot of that is, again, I think what we would say now is that she's she has anxiety, that she's asexual. You know, a lot of these kind of more defined terms that would be in a movie like this that was made now. Uh, you know, define what you think is asexual because she is she does have some sexual desires in here. Right. You're just saying she just does. She has had a very low sex drive or what do you, well, I mean, you I, I don't know that. I mean, she does seem to have a low sex drive or it's not even that. I think the idea that she doesn't see the value, she doesn't, she's not drawn to having sex. It's not that she wishes that she could be having passionate sex and she's not with John because their relationship is dead. Just sex in general holds no appeal to her. And so I think that, and the idea that like, that's not necessarily like a dysfunction that has to be fixed, um, is something that, that, that you kind of think of that, that goes along with that. So in the end, when she and Graham get together and we think they do have sex and it's, do they though, is that what you got out of that scene? I think so. And okay. even if not, they become a couple, you think, yeah, they right? do appear to be a couple of some kind. And at the end do of the we movie. think, are you, and, and she was the aggressor in that scene where they kind of had their sexual liaison. Right. Um, do you think that going forward, that couple is a sexless couple, or do you think that for whatever reason, they found a spark within one another? Well, I, I feel like they didn't have sex in that scene and that maybe they are compatible because of their 
alternative sexual desires that neither of them are really interested in having sexual intercourse. You know, Graham wants that distance and he just wants to, he's sort of a voyeur of some kind and he wants to hear about people's desires and not participate. And she maybe doesn't want to participate either, but they find a closeness emotionally and that's what works for them. Also, again, like I said, Graham is a total creep and I didn't want to see them get together at the end. And I feel like that is not going to work out any better for her than being married to John. I'm surprised how judgmental you are towards Graham. Cause I do think they have at least laid out the beats on how he became, how, what he became, right? Because he was in love and he kind of pushed the woman away. um, And he was a pathological liar and so he didn't want to become attached to anyone for these next nine years. And that's what, whether it's mental or true or not, that's what's caused his impotence. And that's why he has uh, gone on to become this voyeur. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying the movie doesn't give you an understanding of who he is. I just feel like I understand that he's not a pleasant person to well, be around. Steven Soderbergh said, you know, that all four of these characters at one point, he could have been them. So uh, yeah. So what you're saying is you personally don't like Steven Soderbergh as a person. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's just one aspect of him, right, though? Um, that we know about. Yeah. So, I mean, you saw Skitsopolis. There's a lot that's true. There's there. a lot going on with Steven Soderbergh that uh, is hard to comprehend. So, I mean, I think just because I wouldn't want to personally be friends with Graham doesn't mean that I don't find him an interesting character or that I don't think the movie is interesting to watch. I think Graham has one line in that um, meeting in the cafe with Anne that like pretty much sums up the theme of the movie, uh, whether it was accidental or on purpose. He said he had read somewhere that men are a men love who they are attracted to and women become more attracted to people they love or whatever. Right. Yeah. That pretty much sums up these relationships really succinctly. Yeah. And I think that actually could, could account for what you were asking about. Anne is that because she feels this emotional attachment to Graham that she clearly either never felt or doesn't feel anymore with John, that she can maybe allow herself to have some sort of sexual attraction. So, I mean, maybe we call her demisexual now in the, the kind of uh, world of these is that someone identity who terms. Only a sac- sexually attracted to Demi Moore. Well, clearly. <laughs> I uh, don't know demisexual. Yeah. I mean, Do it's, you know it's, what that one is, Dave? No, sir. It's it's a term people use for for only having sexual attraction to someone that they have an emotional uh, bond with first. Oh, so right, which is it's it's a fairly common thing that that people have decided needs a term. Now I understand why I don't know what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Uh, do we want to talk about Steven Soderbergh's filmmaking techniques oh, in man. this film? I think he really moved the camera. Maybe not as um, s- like smoothly as we see in future, but uh, very confidently and with purpose. Everything is with purpose, I think. And a lot, look, this is four people talking for the most part with some sex interludes, right? Yeah. But, but- it basically takes place in a house. Right. Or yeah, an apartment. In an apartment. Yeah. But he's always moving the camera in a, such an interesting way. Like he's just like very mature as a 26 year old who has never made a feature before. Yeah. And I think I was also impressed with the way he overlaps uh, sound and dialogue in this movie. Sound design is so 
critical to this film. I made a note of that. I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think it gets the credit it deserves, but the sound design is very important in this film. Yeah, the way the dialogue from one scene continues over another scene, or in some cases, dialogue from a scene we don't see is playing over a scene that we're not hearing. And I mean, there's a lot of really strong French New Wave influences here, um, which I think is something that he kept going. I mean, there's not... Uh, it's not really in this movie, but the use of jump cuts that especially is a huge thing and out of sight. Um, and you can see all of that coming to to bear here in his first film. There's also these weird sounds that play throughout the movie, like kind of creepy sounds. And one ends in the car after she kind of figures out the truth and she's just like breathing into her hands. You hear these like weird sounds and it really brings up the anxiousness of the film. Yeah, one of the other weird things in this movie, and I don't know if this was a purposeful thing or even maybe just a budget thing, but whenever people have phone conversations, the person on the other end of the phone, it sounds like a voiceover and not like someone on a phone. Yeah, you never really hear them. And yeah, that's an interesting... I thing. mean, so it, it it sounds like they're speaking from like a God level rather than from like the phone. I wonder if that was done. On, I think it, that, that was probably budgetary, but I don't know. But I think it works with the overall sound design of the movie in that we're hearing voices oftentimes that come from elsewhere and that are, they feel like this intimate uh, glimpse into what the characters are thinking, even if it's just a phone conversation. Yeah. The movie is so different and unique. I could totally see if you saw this, you, you would think one way or the other, either this guy's like, the next it director or we're never going to ever hear from this guy again. And I think either would have been uh, probably a fair bet back in 1989. Well, yeah. And um, I think there are plenty of examples of, especially after this movie uh, in the nineties, when that indie boom just exploded and there were so many directors like that who kind of jumped on that, were able to jump on that bandwagon and maybe made one really interesting film and just were never able to recapture that. And that's definitely not the case for Soderbergh, as yeah. we'll talk about. But, and have talked about. And have talked about. Yes, yeah. that's true. What other aspects of this movie really uh, appeal to you, if any? Peter uh, Gallagher's eyebrows? Uh, they're very good, those eyebrows. I think um, even though we don't see much of Baton Rouge, I think the environment is very clear and like it's hot and muggy and just kind of like sticky which all these characters kind of are as well yeah yeah i think so i think this and that was something that i hadn't remembered about the movie but as i was watching it i thought it has a really good sense of place yeah and i don't know why they shot it it in baton rouge but because he's from there oh is he okay well then he clearly he definitely has an understanding of of that area yeah um i mean and then when we get to like out of sight and traffic like the way he stylizes place like incredible stuff you know so um, the other thing that I think is um, worth mentioning is the way he constructs Act Three after um, Peter Gallagher's character, you know, uh, after John goes and kicks Graham out of his own house to watch the video from Sex Lies and Videotape <laughs> so, <laughs> of his wife, Anne, you know? And uh-huh. so he's watching Anne's video and we're watching it with him. Yeah. And then we're not watching it with him. We're actually in the moment yeah. of the video. We're no longer on a black and white television tape it's recording. It's a color television. Uh, it is a colored television. Okay, fair enough. Um, but we're no longer in that. Now we're actually in the scene as it's happening. And that's where, you know, I got the impression that 
they did have sex and you had the impression that they didn't. Right. I mean, there's a lot elided there. And that, that is a very interesting technique because earlier in the movie, we see sort of the lead up to that. And then Soderbergh cuts away from it. And we are back at home with John and Anne. And we wonder, oh, are we going to actually ever see what happened between Anne and Graham? And then we do, of course, as we circle back, even though we don't see all of it. We see it up to the point where he stops the camera and we have to kind of imagine what happens in that period. Uh, and yeah, that's a very good, a very interesting technique. And I think something that he used later in something like Out of Sight, where it it's a kind of nonlinear approach to yeah, storytelling. Right, where the the J-Lo and Clooney kind of love, love uh, story and how that's pieced together. Yeah, and which is just so, so well done. Yeah, we clearly like that film. Yeah, Out of Sight is great. Um, <laughs> and, and as are many Soderbergh movies. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, uh, should we, should we rate this out of four, uh, sexually explicit videotapes? Five of them, right? Oh, out of five. Yeah. I don't know why I said that. I'm going to give it three and a half again. Yeah, I, uh, I am too. I think, I do think there's some rough aspects of this movie. I don't mind that when you see that from the early director that's gone on, like we've talked about with clerks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think in a way, you know, with Soderbergh, you can see how he developed so much more. Right. Whereas with Kevin Smith, not so much. Yeah. Um, but no, I do like this movie. And I think, you know, in a way, this movie, maybe despite its, its acclaim and its position in indie film, because Soderbergh is so prolific and has made so many notable movies that this movie has gotten a little lost, maybe, when people go back to his films. I'm going to disagree with you because, again, you know, when you think of the indie film movement, this was so pivotal to make it what it became. And I think it does get that reverence. So, and that was why when you and I were talking before this episode, I thought maybe we should have someone who knows this from who is a, a, like you and I were kids. We couldn't have seen this, but someone, a film fan who remembers when this did break in the theater and what that, what that was like, because I don't think there were many like indie movies that did this before that and not, definitely not festival movies that did this. Before. Right. Right. Yeah. I, certainly at the time this, that was a major impact, but uh, I guess I feel like maybe it's slightly lessened, but uh, that's a good point to uh, take a moment. And then we'll come back and talk more about the legacy of sex lies and videotape. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about the Cannes Palm d'Or winner, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And just before the break, we were saying this movie is known for like changing the status of indie film. And, and at the time that it came out, it sort of what put indie films on the map, I guess we could say. I think indie film became appointment films the way we think of like blockbusters are now, you know, and blockbusters were then. But um, this was a smart, intelligent adult drama that people could go and see and talk about afterwards. You know, not that those didn't happen before, but again, from a film festival standpoint, this is going to always be regarded as like, one of the all-time gems to ever come out of a film festival scene. Yeah, I think so. And we talked earlier about how this made Sundance into a much bigger deal. Yeah, um, you know, of course, Pulp Fiction, we had mentioned. Um, but Pulp Fiction had already, you know, we had already had Reservoir Dogs. 
I almost think of like Sling Blade because that just came so far out of nowhere and became such a, a, a kind of like beloved piece of film of the year that it came out, 96, you know, that, that that's something that I would relate it to. But yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, again, we were, we were too young to really feel its impact, but uh, the reverberations we're still feeling today. Right, and I think that, that was my point is that at the time, it was this movie and everyone was interested in this movie. And the legacy in a way is just that like, and movies like this are able to find that audience, but this movie specifically doesn't get that level of attention. Someone anymore. had to break, be the pioneer. Right. This was the pioneer, but I think people do realize that. I think you're, um, but maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe, you know, I'm giving people too much credit and you're right that they're dumb idiots who don't know anything. That's not much. what I was saying. You know, I think somewhere in between where both you guys are right now on this particular topic, I, I, I think sexualized videotape, like for me, like I said, I'd never actually seen it. And this is like one of those, those indie movies you just, you always know about growing up, but then you never quite get around to. Right. You know I think I mean? that's the idea. Does this, that, does this podcast make you want to see the movie, Dave? It actually really does. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> hey, you know, one other question I had, because uh, we were kids at the time. Yeah. Um, I wonder you know, how much of this was taboo sexually. It was a very titillating title. Right. Yeah. Certainly the title is very eye catching. And I imagine that that did probably push uh, some boundaries, even though, I mean, it's all talking as we're saying. And even in the sex scenes, there's no nudity. Right. So I wonder, you know, speaking of that titillating title, um, I had read that this uh, movie was playing in West Germany when the Berlin wall fell down and a bunch of East Germans had flooded over and when they saw the title, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, they thought, oh, Western porn. That, what was that? That wasn't even, yeah, <laughs> guten Tag. Even, even better than your Peter Gallagher impression. <laughs> Where is German the obby here? No, that's still Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but they went to, they went to it. To, I can do German. It's just not there. Uh -huh. right yeah, just Any, do Werner Herzog. <laughs> very good. We will watch the Sex, Lies, and Videotape. There you go. And then we will huh. examine our innermost thoughts. Why has it taken us so long to make these videotapes? What do the tapes mean in the grand scheme of things? In the end, we will all just perish to dust. Yeah. So anyway, they thought they were going to go see uh, uh, porn, and then yeah. they saw this instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And Steven Soderbergh, uh, we mentioned, we, we rattled off a bunch of his films. And I mean, he's incredibly prolific. Down. What? The wall came down. We can stop with this now. We I, I regret suggesting you do it that way. Titillation, sexual liberation. But instead, what did we get? A man with a video camera who had to hide his own sexual proclivities in the privacy of his own apartment. All right. <laughs> really? Okay. Just, just stop. Stream of consciousness, Werner Yeah, Herzog. that's, 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 a, I have to give you, that is a good Werner Herzog impression. I'll give you that. Um, do we want to talk about what's your favorite Steven Soderbergh movie? Yeah. Um, well, we've mentioned, we mentioned, I think out of sight probably is, but yeah, I'm going to mention one other one okay. as the most underrated one. Yeah. The Limey. Right. Which also came out in that 98 to 2000 period. Traffic's amazing. I think, uh, Brockovich is great of the early movies. I thought King of the Hill is really good. King of the Hill is so good. I love King of the Hill. Yeah. So there you go. So. Um, and I mean, he's done some good stuff lately behind the candelabra was very good. Yeah, that was really good. Uh, you mentioned out of sight. I, um, 
I like Ocean's Eleven a lot. I mean, that was probably his most polished, blockbustery kind of thing. But as that kind of movie, it's so entertaining. It's so much fun. Um, I, I really like uh, some of his less regarded films. I like The Good German a lot. That was um, all right. And his version of Solaris. He works very, very well with George Clooney, obviously. Right, right. Uh, as, as we mentioned. And I thought it was interesting um, that, again, he did write this. And we talked about how he wrote this uh, movie in nine days on a road trip. But for the most part, although he's incredibly multi-talented and he usually functions as his own cinematographer and his own editor, he rarely writes his own films. And uh, some of his other writing credits on his films include King of the Hill, uh, Schizopolis, of course. So the early ones he was writing were. Yeah, The Underneath, which is one that he's kind of disowned. And, uh, and then Solaris, which was the last film of his that he wrote, which was back, I think, in like 2002. Um, but he works closely with, I mean, people like uh, Scott Z. Burns, I think, have, has written a bunch of his films. Uh, Scott Frank, I think, has written uh, right. a few. So, I mean, he obviously has people that he works with um, that he has established a relationship just as he has with actors like George Clooney, but that he himself is not usually a writer. And maybe I don't know if he thinks of himself as a writer. Speaking yeah. of that, um, Cliff Martinez uh, yeah. composed the Red score Hot for Chili this, Peppers. and that was his first ever uh, feature film score. And apparently, I didn't even realize that he's worked with Soderbergh on a ton of things. Yeah, yes. I mean, I yeah. definitely knew that. In fact, it was interesting yeah. when I saw his credit on here, and I thought, oh, wow, even going back to this, they work together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, was it Traffic, I think? Did Cliff Martinez win an Oscar yeah, for that, deservedly. maybe? Traffic, yeah. it, Traffic's a great movie and deserved all the Oscars that it won. And that was the year Soderbergh beat himself for right, with best Aaron Brockovich, yeah. So that tells you how good he was. They just were like, ah, we're going to just vote him over him, you know, so... But he did that run from 98 to 2000 of Out of Sight, the Limey, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic. Like, man, four home runs in a row. Yeah, and wasn't Ocean's Eleven right after that? Yes, it was. So, um, But, you know, um, and then, so I would say that Ocean's Eleven is probably, like, the beginning of, like, what, period three, and now we're in, like, period four of Soderbergh or something Yeah, this like kind that. of post-retirement period, and especially now where, I mean, he has made, I think, like, four movies since sort of, uh, returning from retirement, yeah. but where he's really also interested in these like alternative forms of media. He made that series mosaic for uh, HBO. Yeah. That was sort of an interactive thing. Doing a lot of stuff on Netflix for lower budgets. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And he's really interested uh, as, as, as Dave hates in not having his movies in theaters uh, mm. like uh, high flying bird, which was his Netflix movie from 2019 or one of his two Netflix movies from 2019. Yeah. I haven't that he watched the yet. The laundromat is not is not too great. And actually, I feel like his post-retirement period has been sort of underwhelming, although I loved High Flying Bird. Well, where are you taking the where does retirement happen from? I mean, movie wise, um, Lucky Logan, Logan, Logan Lucky and uh, Unsane and then uh, High Flying Bird and The Laundromat um, are the films that he's done. Then. Yeah. But also he's worked on The Nick and on Mosaic and uh, maybe some other weird uh, alternative kind of projects. Yeah, I feel like I liked Unsane, but I don't even remember it right now because that and Contagion and Side Effects all kind of blend together for me. Oh yeah, I see. I think Contagion and Side Effects are really good. Yeah. Um, and 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 good examples of his his sort of later period, just random stuff. 
But Unsane, I, which is looks terrible, like visually, the, the right. worst shot on iPhone kind of thing and stilted performances. And I just really dislike that Well, movie. you and I both like Haywire, the Gina Carano, like the action movie. That yeah, that like. one's a lot of fun. And I think like you mentioned before, you know, getting great performances out of people. And Gina Carano is someone who that was, I think, her first role or certainly her first major role and who has you know, done some B-movie stuff since then and maybe struggled to transition from her MMA career into acting, but Soderbergh knew exactly what to do with her and got a really good performance out of her. He's got another movie coming out, uh, Let Them All Talk? or Yeah, it's an HBO Max. Uh, oh. So I know HBO Max itself doesn't launch, I think, until sometime in the spring in April or something. But... Yeah, okay. So he's still directing even though he's retired. Right, well, I mean, I don't think he says that he's retired. It's just he said he was for a while and then he came back. And, and yeah, his next movie, after doing two Netflix, Netflix movies, he's sort of switching streaming services and doing an HBO Max movie for when that service launches. And it seems like he's kind of lost interest in theatrical releases after Logan Lucky and Unsane didn't make money. And he had these like alternative plans for how to promote them that didn't work out. And I think he's kind of disillusioned with the idea of even releasing movies in theaters anymore. Well, he's so prolific. Maybe he's just like, hey, I can just have my own workshop of films. And this for me is like, you know, I can just keep making movies and people keep paying me a lot of money and that's all I want to do, you know? Right. But I think he is more, he is interested in, he takes an interest in the, the business side of it and the distribution yeah, side of it. I, and we saw that with Logan Lucky as a, as a big thing. But um, what I'm thinking is like with these streaming services, they're probably not noting him to death and making him do, you know, uh, Hey, Steven baby, it has to be this way. Right. So right. He's right. Getting to, you know, explore the art, which is really what he's about. That's true. And that level of freedom can be great and, you know, can be maybe not as great. So we mentioned, so like, I mean, we're going to say ocean. Uh, well, I would say out of sight and we all know Aaron Rockman, out of sight traffic and the limey are maybe. And then we like King of the Hill right there as well. Yeah. I like, I haven't seen the limey in a really long time. And again, I do like a lot of those later movies a lot, like side effects and contagion. I really like Solaris. I, I mean, I feel like we could just go through every one of his movies and there are an odd lot that I yeah. don't care for. Uh, one that we didn't mention is Full Frontal, which is, quote, the unofficial sequel to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And I feel like I must have seen it, but I have no recollection. Tell me about this. Uh, I mean, I saw it when it came out and I don't remember a lot. What I remember is that it was very poorly reviewed and I liked it. But I think it's possible that I had not seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape at the time that I saw it. Was this, like, um, just, like, one of these ensemble like little story here little story there type pieces i mean or? i think it's it i don't think it has really anything at all to do with sex lies and videotape other than like he said that and people yeah. kind of took him at his word it's a film industry story i think and is one of these things where he just came up with some weird stuff and called in favors from all of his famous friends it was right after that period of the movies that you were mentioning aaron brockovich and traffic and oceans 11 where he had so much clout that he could get, you know, Julia Roberts and people like that to show up to just do whatever random stuff he wanted. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, man, Julia Roberts, right? Aaron Brockovich. Again, we're talking about an actress who's a great actress who achieved even greater heights with Steven Soderbergh. And didn't that year he won, did he win, I mean, not just director, um, Traffic won Best Picture, right? Or was that Stupid Gladiator, the year that Gladiator won? I am not sure. But Aaron, but she won for Aaron Brockovich. And was that did Catherine Zeta-Jones win for Best Supporting Actress in Traffic that year? 
possibly yeah we're or maybe we're, it was chicago we're, we're not we're not sure about any of this stuff, okay but uh but he made a lot of movies that were very highly acclaimed here are two things i wanted to mention just kind of like if maybe film history goes a completely different way if this doesn't happen one was that this wasn't even supposed to play in competition at cam at yeah. can another film wasn't finished in time so he just slotted this in and it ended up you know right helping build the legend and uh, I thought this was funny. On the first day of filming, they say that uh, producers sent Steven Soderbergh a telegram on the first day of filming Sex Lives and Videotape saying, we heard you couldn't even direct traffic. And then oh, he, won the he best directed traffic and won an Oscar. Oh, for it. So, good stuff. But you were saying how he doesn't he's critical, maybe sometimes a little assholeish towards his own movies. Like, yeah, I found this quote uh, about Sex Lives and Videotape from Steven Soderbergh. He said it. It looks like it's made by someone who wants to think deep, but really isn't. Response is indicative of the fact that there was so little else for people to latch onto out there, which I think is bullshit because we picked this year, 1989, because there's so many good movies that came out. This yeah, year. but I mean, it certainly is. There's so little else in the sense of movies that are like this. And that's why it created that sensation and, and sort of led to that big, that boom of indie films. I mean, it was a unique thing at the time that it came out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a seminal and an important film in uh, the history of cinema. It is. Uh, do we want to talk about the the legacy of these uh, actors' careers, who are all? I I feel like you know this is sort of the height of their abilities in a lot of ways, and and all of them are steadily working actors, but none of them really. Spader is the most high profile. Yeah, well, but... I mean, look, he was a bad guy in Avengers, so I think he's like had some movie starish brushes anyway. Right? Yeah, but I mean, he's done more TV. I mean, he was uh, did Boston Legal, and he currently does The Blacklist. Right, he's a big star. Yeah, but he's a big TV star. Yeah, but he was so charming on Boston Legal. Like, I thought he was great on. He was great. I mean, that that character kind of became a parody of itself, and that's really right. David Kelly's fault and not James Spader's fault. But yeah, what a that happens a lot with David Kelly. But um, no, I mean, I think he also James Spader. Maybe this is part of why I I feel turned off by Graham as a person because he has this legacy of playing creeps. That's like his thing. I think that. But you love Crispin Glover. Do I? <laughs> I don't know where you got that from. I felt like if I said it confidently enough, you'd just go along with it. No, so, no, that's not true. So. And it's not that I don't like James Spader. Or I think Crispin it's Glover. Yeah. He's good. He's good at playing characters who give you that kind of creepy feeling. Yeah. Um, all these actors, like you said, there. Andy McDowell was the biggest star, I'd say. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Romantic lead. Uh, Groundhog's Day. Come yeah. on, man. Yeah, Groundhog Day is great. Yeah, but. Uh, where is she now? She, I looked her up and I was like, she's really not doing much at all. No, but she is doing stuff. It's just not, I mean, she was on like a Hallmark show for several seasons. Oh, and yeah. She just did some indie film with Chris O'Dowd that I think got some festival acclaim. And okay. she, she works. I think all of them do. They all, they are. All you know, Laura San Giacomo works. Peter Gallagher works. It's just not stuff that really makes a lot of an impact. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we do love Sandy Cohen from the OC. Don't don't do an impression. Was, don't even start. I, I can see you winding up to it and just don't. Ben, you got to be a good guy. I don't know. No, no, no. But I we we I we do love the OC. Benjamin, you've come out here to the OC. No, no. What is that for you? Stop with the Vernon Hertzog, please. Ocean is the frontier. Couldn't be a. You cannot go through the vast expanse of the entire universe no. just down here just, in Orange County. Just, just please. <laughs> Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention, uh, be, because, uh, Jason, you are such an Adam Sandler fan 
that uh, Stephen Brill, who plays the kind of annoying guy at the bar in this movie, went on to a career as director of many bad Adam Sandler movies. And it just is such a random thing in this movie. That's fantastic. Yeah, director of uh, Little Nicky and Sandy Wexler. And uh, he's one of Sandler's go-to guys. Yeah, you almost like the lines are so hacky that he has as this bar fly. You almost wonder if they were just like, his own hacky lines, right? <laughs> yeah, it could so. be, you know. He's definitely no Steven Soderbergh. I like this. Uh, there were a lot of alternative titles for this movie. Yeah. My favorite was 4602, which was the length of the video that uh, Anne made for Graham. Oh, yeah. That's a terrible title. Well, it was my favorite of the, the alternative must have been even worse. They weren't good. <laughs> this is a great title. As we're saying, this is so eye-catching and that you can't read this title and not be intrigued. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. We are, I'm not saying, hey, they should have named it that, dude. Okay. God. All right. Unbelievable, dude. Well, that's so touchy there. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess maybe that'll uh, be our note to end on. <laughs> Unless you uh, wanted to read off some more titles or something. Or... I don't have them with me, Josh. All right. All right. <laughs> well, then that is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Have you ever lied in a bed with a potter plant on your penis? I have not, but I did appreciate that after that, she took the plant home with her. <laughs> oh, there you go. That was, that was good. She got something out of it. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So that's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. That is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. Yeah, social media. We're on it. AwesomeMovieYear.com <laughs> and then Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Twitter and then Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And then awesome movie you're on Instagram. There you go. All right. And where are you on the social media? Oh, Jason? I'm on all the social medias as Jason Harris comedy or Jay Harris comedy, which I think is my Twitter. Who knows? Even at this point, it's all going downhill. Uh, I'll be on go for Jason. I'll eventually redesign that website. All right. Dot com. Who cares? Josh? Somebody cares. I care. Thanks, buddy. I care. I am at Josh Bell hates everything.com. At Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find us wherever you listen to this podcast. And also uh, follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. What do we have on our next episode, oh, Jason? It is our box office flop. And it is a notorious box office flop. When you think of box office flops, this is the sex, lies, and videotape of flops. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. <laughs> Terry Gilliam's film. I'm looking forward to that because uh, I had loved uh, a lot of Terry Gilliam films, and I'm interested to revisit that. So tune in for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen next time. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. Why did you even bother? This is all a waste of your time. You're just doing this just so you do not think about what it is you should really be thinking about. <laughs>